1: Welcome to Cineversary, a podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Every month we send happy birthday wishes to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee. That's anything from a 20th all the way up to a 100th anniversary. This is your devoted host, Eric Martin, creator of the Cineverse blog and moderator of the weekly Cineverse Film Discussion Group. If you have just discovered our program, we give you a warm welcome. If you're a regular listener, we are delighted to have you back. So, what's the greatest movie ever made during the golden age of Hollywood? Maybe it's Citizen Kane. Or is it Gone with the Wind? Or The Wizard of Oz? Or Singing in the Rain? Or is it the picture that consistently ranks tops or near the top among so many reviewers, fans, and scholars? The film that many deem so close to perfection that it practically defies criticism. This month, we are talking about the one and only Casablanca, which originally premiered on November 26, 1942, marking an 80th anniversary. Yeah, this is a big beloved film and a big birthday we're talking about, so I wanted to do more than just round up the usual suspects, as they say. I made sure to enlist some heavy hitters who could discuss the many merits of Casablanca with me. So, this time around, I brought back friend of the podcast, David Thompson, a renowned film critic, cinema historian, and author of several books, including Sleeping with Strangers, How the Movies Shaped Desire, as well as Kenneth Turan, the film critic for National Public Radio and the former Los Angeles Times film critic, as well as the author of Not to Be Missed, 54 Favorites from a Lifetime of Film. David, Ken, and I will take a trip back in time to Rick's Café American to hear Sam play it again and to examine how Casablanca continues to resonate and why it still matters all these years later. What's possibly left to say about a film as famous as Casablanca that hasn't already been expressed? Actually, plenty, as you will discover in the two interviews that follow. But before we commence with the conversations, let's learn a bit more about Casablanca, courtesy of our friends at Wikipedia. Casablanca is a 1942 American romantic drama film directed by Michael Curtiz and starring Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman, and Paul Henreid. Filmed and set during World War II, it focuses on Bogart, playing American expatriate Rick Blaine, who must choose between his love for a woman, played by Bergman, or helping her husband, played by Heinried, a Czech resistance leader, escape from the Vichy-controlled city of Casablanca to continue his fight against the Germans. The screenplay is based on Everybody Comes to Ricks, an unproduced stage play by Murray Burnett and Joan Allison. The supporting cast features Claude Rains, Conrad Veidt, Sidney Greenstreet, Peter Lorre, and Dooley Wilson, among many others. Warner Brothers story editor Irene Diamond convinced producer Hal B. Wallace to purchase the film rights to the play in January 1942. Brothers Julius and Philip Epstein were initially assigned to write the script, but despite studio resistance, they left to work on Frank Capra's Why We Fight series early in 1942. Consequently, Howard Koch was assigned to the screenplay until the Epsteins returned a month later. Principal photography began on Casablanca on May 25, 1942, ending on August 3rd. The film was shot entirely at Warner Brothers Studios in Burbank, California, with the exception of one sequence at Van Nuys Airport in Los Angeles. Although Casablanca was an A-list film with established stars and first-rate writers, no one involved with its production expected it to stand out among the hundreds of pictures produced by Hollywood every year. Casablanca was rushed into release to take advantage of the publicity from the Allied invasion of North Africa a few weeks earlier. It had its world premiere on November 26, 1942 in New York City and was released nationally in the U.S. on January 23, 1943. The movie was a solid, if unspectacular, success in its initial run. But it went on to exceed expectations because Casablanca proceeded to win the Academy Award for Best Picture, while Curtiz was selected as Best Director and the Epsteins and Koch were honored for Best Adapted Screenplay. Its reputation has certainly grown to the point that its lead characters, memorable lines, and pervasive theme song have all become iconic, and Casablanca today consistently ranks near the top of lists of the greatest films in history. In 1989, the United States Library of Congress selected the film, As one of the first for its preservation in the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Speaking of those lists, yes, Casablanca placed number two and number three, respectively, on the American Film Institute's 1999 and 2007 lists of the 100 Greatest Films of All Time. Then you've got the AFI's 100 years 100 passions list of the 100 greatest love stories in American cinema and yes indeed Casablanca captures the top slot there. For the AFI's list of the top 100 movie quotes you've got six of Casablanca's most famous lines represented there. In 2005, Casablanca was named one of the 100 Greatest Films of the last 80 years by Time Magazine. In 2006, the Writers Guild of America voted Casablanca the best ever in its list of the 101 Greatest Screenplays. Today, the picture enjoys a 99% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, where its average critical score clocks in at 9.4 out of 10, and its audience rating is 95%. Okay, let's turn our attention briefly to the original theatrical trailer, for Casablanca.
2: Casablanca, city of hope and despair, located in French Morocco in North Africa. The meeting place of adventurers, fugitives, criminals, refugees lured into this danger-swept oasis by the hope of escape to the Americas. But they're all trapped. For there is no escape. Against this fascinating background is woven the story of an imperishable love and the enthralling saga of six desperate people, each in Casablanca, to keep an appointment with destiny. I was
0: willing to shoot Captain Rhino and I'm willing to shoot you. All
2: right, Major, you asked for it.
0: <laughs> How much I still
2: love you. I know a good deal more about you than you suspect. I know, for instance, that you're in love with a woman. It's perhaps a strange circumstance that we both should love the same woman. What do you want for Sam? I don't buy and sell human beings. It's too bad that's Casablanca's leading commodity. You can ask any price you want, but you must give me those letters. That's no deal. All right, I tried to reason with you. I tried everything. Now I want those letters.
1: I'm
3: shocked, shocked.
1: That's what Captain Renault would say if he knew it's 2022 and you haven't yet watched Casablanca. If you'd like to get the most out of the following interviews and avoid serious spoilers, why don't you do yourself a solid, finally screen Casablanca and return to this point in the show.
0: You're saying this only to make me go.
1: Yeah, it's true, Elsa, but it's for your own good. Everybody back? Let's get this GabFest going. First up, my chat with David Thompson. It's time to welcome David Thompson, renowned film critic, cinema historian, and author of more than 20 books, including The New Biographical Dictionary of Film, How to Watch a Movie, and Sleeping with Strangers, How the Movies Shaped Desire. Now, we last spoke with David a year ago at this time to honor the 70th anniversary of A Place in the Sun, and I got to tell you what a great conversation that was. So it's a real pleasure to have you back. David, we are delighted that you've decided to return to Cineversary, and
2: yeah, welcome back. Well, thank you, and thank you for your kind words, and I'm very pleased to be here.
1: We are talking about The Big Enchilada, arguably one of the, if not the most popular, classic Hollywood movie of them all, Casablanca, which celebrates its 80th anniversary this month, originally released in 1942. So I'm assuming you're a fan of the film. Tell me, what do you recall when and where you first watched Casablanca, and what was your initial reaction? Can you recall?
2: Well, I had been... Set up for Casablanca in the sense that by the time I was sort of, let's say, 15, mm-hmm. that sort of age, my parents and anywhere else around knew that I was crazy about the movies. And um, one of the things that was always said to me was, wait until you see Casablanca. Mm. Now you understand, as I'm sure you do, that in those days, seeing old movies was not easy because the the, the theaters were filled with new movies, current movies, mm-hmm. and th- there was not a great deal of revival of old titles. So I'm nearly 100% confident that when I saw it, it was because it was shown on television. I see.
1: Mm-hmm. And of course, it sounds like it's a film whose reputation exceeded it. You, you heard a lot of word of mouth.
2: My parents, above all, I think, thought it was a terrific movie. Mm-hmm. They had been young people during the war and, and I think that it's easy for us now to forget how much that film meant to people who were living through the war.
1: Absolutely. Just put it in context, you were you grew up in the UK, correct? In uh, Britain?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, I'm talking about my childhood and youth in uh, London. I think people like Casablanca because they just liked it as a movie, obviously. <laughs> But also they liked it because it represented the sort of unification of decent people for the war effort. And, and from Britain's point of view, and remember Britain got into the war a couple of years ahead of America, Right. it was very much the film that marked America coming into the war, joining in. Mm-hmm. Rick is this sort of, fairly cynical outsider who is brought to see that the cause needs him and he identifies with it and in obvious ways there was a lot of propaganda in the film sure uh, trying to make americans feel that the war was a proper thing Mm -hmm. even today you feel that in the film and anyway my parents i think felt that you know, they said it was just a super film, and there was no doubt when I saw it, it was a super film. I loved it. I don't know that I've ever met anyone who didn't love the film.
1: Maybe Pauline you know, kale
2: Oh, well, maybe. <laughs> I, mean, I do think 80 years later, there are some problems of the film. But, okay. You know, we'll talk about that maybe sure. later. But it was a film that made people happy about going to the movies. Mm. And it made them feel good about joining in this terrible war. And um, I, I was totally swept up in it. And um, I th- I have a hunch that the only time I had seen Bogart before
0: mm-hmm.
2: would have been in The African Queen. And he's tremendous in that, but he's not really Bogart, if you know what I mean.
1: I think and, I know what you mean.
2: <laughs> people have told me that Bogart was this wonderful. Tough guy. Tough, hard, but romantic underneath it. And I hadn't quite got him in The African Queen. A film I've never liked that much. But anyway, leave that aside. But in Casablanca, I understood totally what he was on screen.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's tender. He's romantic. He's tough. He's (laughs) cynical. He's a variety of different mannerisms and emotions, right?
2: He's sort of an ideal guy, if you know what I mean. I mean, if you think about it hard, I'm not sure that he's a guy you want to be with the rest of your life. But uh, <laughs> he's a very winning character mm-hmm. without being sentimentalized, and and I liked him. I liked Bergman, obviously. I mean, she's so beautiful and she was so noble. But I liked all the supporting characters too, and because that, that's part of what Casablanca is. Absolutely. You feel you're in the cafe, yes. surrounded by some of the most interesting people you will ever see, and you only get bits and pieces of some of them. but but they're all interesting.
1: No, no question. Uh, everything you're saying is just hitting spot on with me as well. I don't yeah. even recall the first time I saw it. I, I I came late to the party. It was probably in my teens. And I didn't pay much attention because I, I kind of went through a Bogart period where I wanted to see what all the fuss was about. I've always been yeah.
0: uh, right. a fan
1: of classic movies, uh, You know, uh, unlike a lot of teenagers of my era and things like that. I kind of was a retro guy. And but I didn't really pay close attention to it probably until college age and seeing some film, you know, film classes and things like that. So, but I got to tell you, every time I see it, I, I know this sounds cliche. It's it's uh, it's the honest to god truth. It just gets better and better. I, it's that's that's the gospel truth for me. This most recent rewatch, the word that kept popping into my mind is perfect. It is. It is a perfect movie. It isn't necessarily my favorite movie ever. Right. I've got a few ahead of it. Yeah. But it's in the top ten, no question about it. And again, it just rewards so faithfully upon repeat viewing for me. How about for you? When you rewatch, do you do you feel rewarded?
2: I know what you're saying. I think that's touching on one of the things that I find most endearing about the film. Um, it does feel perfect. It does feel as if all the characters fit together Mm. as if the story gets worked out in a wonderfully tidy way, if you know what I mean. That's true. Beautifully shot, the music is right. It's very hard to find a fault in the film. And what is so interesting is that that is the result of a really chaotic production period.
1: I wanted to ask you about this because, again, you wrote a book about Warner Brothers called The Making yeah, of an American it. Movie Studio. So, yeah, what did you learn about the film when researching and writing your book? And Anything interesting to share?
2: I had met a couple of people who were involved on the film, and I knew that what we see as perfection was a kind of chaos um, they didn't quite know whether to do it at all. They didn't quite know when they had a script that worked. They kept changing the script. They had indecision about casting it up until near the end. Ilsa, Ingrid Bergman didn't know which guy she was going to go off with. you know <laughs> it was it was a scene of disorder right Now I don't think this is uncommon in Hollywood films of that period or in films of any period. Hmm. We tend to look at films and think ah, oh, they knew exactly what they were doing, because it looks perfect, but they didn't always know exactly what they were doing. And it's fascinating to see the contrast between indecision and decisiveness on screen. And, and you know that's another word for what you call perfection, and I share it. Um, it, it feels exactly Right.
1: Yeah, it feels like a synergistic confluence of events just coming together, coalescing perfectly. And I, there was a great uh, featurette on the Blu-ray uh, about, uh, they call it the Casablanca, an unlikely classic. Yeah. And they interview yeah. Spielberg and they interview Friedkin and a lot of scholars and, and, and people in the industry. And it was just riveting and fascinating to learn uh, some of the things you were telling me just a moment ago, but also... That ending scene, they they were making it up as they went along, so to speak. They, they were writing the pages the day of. And so, in other words, the actors didn't even know how it was going to end. They did. And, and that kind of informs the performance, if you really look back at it, and you know that little trivial detail. I think
2: you're right. I think it. I think it, you know, there was a real suspense mm-hmm. among the players doing it. And also, it testifies to something I think we easily overlook. That in the days of the studio system, the craftspeople, they had worked with each other a lot. The actors at a studio where they were all under contract, or most of them under contract, mm-hmm. they had worked together a lot. And there was a fellowship. I don't mean to make that corny or sentimental. It it was not necessarily that they all liked each other, mm-hmm. but they knew how to work with each other. Right. Do you know what I mean? Sure. And it, it, it's something that you sometimes get in theater companies where you see actors playing parts and you realize two, three years ago, you saw the same two actors playing different parts. Right. And you realize that they have acquired a timing. Yes. And, and a sort of what I call a fellowship, a brotherhood, sisterhood, that really is an enchanting thing to see, mm. particularly when it's working as effectively. And in doing my book on Warner Brothers, um, I found without any question that there was at that studio, which was a pretty tough studio, led by tough guys, mm-hmm. Jack Warner particularly, that was a pleasure people had in making these films. And that goes back to the 30s, and it carries on into the early 50s. It was a time when the factory system, which can easily be presented as a rather bad thing, The factory system was a basis for good work. It was a rich field in which plants and vegetables and flowers could grow. And it's one of the reasons why we look back on the the factory system rather wistfully. We sort of wish that Hollywood was like that still today. (laughs) That
1: well-oiled machine in which you could pretty much count on the commodity being churned out. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, Casablanca, we're in, a, we're in a total agreement here. It could be the finest example of a studio assembly line product being churned out during the golden age of Hollywood. I mean, really, this is as good as it gets as far as a quick, I, don't, I hate to say the word cookie cutter, but assembly line or factory kind of production mode. That's
2: exactly the way I see it. And you yeah. know, just because it was a factory system doesn't mean that everything was cut and dried. For example, mm-hmm. and I would point to this as a test the Claude Rains character, Renault, the Vichy policeman, he gets more and more interesting as you see the film.
1: Oh, uh, totally. Mm-hmm. And,
2: you know, you could, you could say that at the time he was just a plot convenience, holding it all together. The sort of the only reliable authority figure in the film, although not that reliable. <laughs> what he's showing you is a portrait of a cynic, an operator a manipulator an opportunist not a great man but a man who can do good things i think his character for me uh gets more interesting whereas you know the other lead characters i know exactly what they're going to say i could almost recite it but renault louis is a really intriguing figure and when he and rick go off at the end you suddenly feel Not just the cliche of what's said, this is the start of a beautiful friendship. You feel these two people, these two men, are good for each other. Yes. Uh, And that's quite unusual, I think.
1: Yes, they both exhibit shades of gray, unlike a lot of other characters. I mean, you think about... Uh, Victor Laszlo. I mean, he's such a stoic, noble character, and especially in a patriotic time of war yeah. where you're tooting the horn for the allies. It's so easy to root for a character like that. That's right. he, he's such a, a paragon of righteousness, if you will, and, and virtue. But in contrast, you have characters like, we on Rick, where... Again, they are capable of some shady things. I mean, Ren- Renault is basically manipulating, blackmailing women, if you will, to sleep you with him. A
2: question.
1: Yeah. <laughs> And he's a cad by modern standards. uh, He would be a times up, you know, poster boy. But again, to your point, I think the film is all about these two characters. It is the primary relationship to me. I understand that it is about Ilsa and Rick, and that is the you know the heart of the uh, the narrative, uh, the love story, and everything. But if you really think about it, it really is about Rick and Renault undergoing a character arc. Yeah. And and that's why they are as you said perfect for each other at the end because they have decided to do a good thing. They also are going to be on the run and they still have more maturity and growth to experience, but they're going to do it together. They're a dynamic couple. Well,
2: I think it's more than that even. It's the these two guys who are not natural companions Mm -hmm. they're capable of a companionship that can win the war and you know that's putting it at a very grand level but i think for warner brothers for jack warner and a studio that had been very early in its opposition to the Nazis, Mm -hmm. there is a real feeling that those two guys they're not just walking off into the desert and vagueness, they're going to do something about the war. And it's a way in which the movie was made, I think.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: It was obviously made to make money, which is fair enough. But it was also made to make people in the audience all over the world feel, I need to be a part of this.
1: That's right. It speaks to the isolationists among Americans in particular, because Rick continually says, I stick my neck out for no one. And Renau says... I'm thinking about myself, I'm paraphrasing here, but they kind of mirror each other in some of their ethos and and the things they say. And so as far as being surrogates for some of the audience of the time, there would have been a sentiment about hesitation about getting involved in World War II. Now, of course, by the time Casablanca was, was released, we had already been in the war a good year. Yeah. Um, but still, there were it was very uncertain. And, and what Laszlo says at the end, I think it's going to turn our way. There was no certainty that the Allies were going to win at this time. So in a way, yeah, the film does some propagandistic kind of heavy lifting there with the characters, but it doesn't feel shamelessly jingoistic to me.
2: No, I agree. It doesn't feel forced. And I think that's in part because really, apart from uh Laszlo and Ilsa there aren't any noble people in the film mm-hmm. they're realistic people they've all got their reason for doing what they're doing they're opportunistic they're they're selfish and that allows you to feel that you're looking at something real now obviously the movie's casablanca is a fanciful creation there is nobody in the film if you remember or if you notice there is nobody in the film who is a Moroccan. Nobody comes from Casablanca.
1: (laughs) However, I did learn that Curtiz did cast quite a few non-actors, actual refugees you see uh, standing among the throng in some of those wide
2: shots. Uh, I believe that, but there are, but they aren't characters in the film. They have nothing to say. (laughs) And, You know, I suspect that in Morocco itself now, uh, the film is regarded with rather mixed feelings. (laughs) I
1: would probably agree, right.
2: Quite legitimately. But Mm -hmm. that's part of the time it was made, and I think everybody would understand the compromises, that had gone into this kind of a film
1: yeah well Spielberg was saying as much in that feature ad, calling it uh, as a paraphrase here you know wonderfully synthetic or artificial I mean obviously you Absolutely. can you can sniff out this is being shot on a sound stage in a back lot and you yeah. know it, it's not very realistic in terms of trying to recreate the real no, Morocco or anything no, like that
2: no, no I doubt that anybody on the film had been to Morocco mm-hmm. seriously but that doesn't matter it's a fanciful almost a dream country. But what happens there, the dramatic test, you feel the reality of that. And that's why the decisions taken at the end of the film are not just plot decisions. They
1: mm-hmm.
0: they
2: have a larger meaning for the world of 1942 and 43. Absolutely, Something we've not touched on. But the film was enormously assisted by the fact that as it came out, the Allied forces were actually taking casablanca itself so that's right there were maps on the front pages if the audience weren't sure to tell them where casablanca was and what it represented in the battles going on
1: wonderfully timely pr and also uh they were having talks at casablanca between churchill and roosevelt so i mean it was just uh, perfectly falling into their laps
2: yeah I'm sure some people thought Jack Warner had arranged all that. <laughs> <laughs> right. The studio moguls are running the war.
1: Yeah. You think about all the different ways that this movie still matters and how it stood the test of time. We're going through this kind of without necessarily doing a laundry list, but let's go back a moment and talk about that cast because to me, wow, this could be the most outstanding ensemble cast I've seen in a classic Hollywood movie. I know you could point to Gone with the Wind and all kinds of John Ford films and, and, and name other contenders for that perhaps that title. But wow, the colorful supporting characters portrayed by veteran character actors. I mean, this film could have, to me anyway, the most effective lineup and the deepest bench of any film up to that time or possibly since, in my mind. You've got Claude Rains we talked about. Peter Lorre, Sidney Greenstreet, Dooley Wilson, Conrad Veidt, S.C. Mm-hmm. Sacall Madeline LeBeau, Joy Page, John Quaylen, Leonid Kinsky. And some of these may not be household names, of course, but you've seen them in countless classic movies. I mean, you can't help but identify yeah, I know that face. I remember that character actor. And it just seems so perfectly cast.
2: Well, I think it's a fruit of the age when movie stars were hugely important. Sure. Clearly, you've got to have two people in the lead roles who feel right. But every film that was made was loaded with supporting actors Mm -hmm. and most of those supporting actors were under contract to the studio. So they'd been in a lot of films. Audiences were more or less familiar with them and, and they had worked with each other probably several times before. And I love that feeling that there is a certain kind of supporting actor. You can trust, you can just say, Come in on Tuesday morning and we'll begin. I'll give you a script, but, you know, you know the way this character thinks and the way he's going to talk. You take Conrad Veidt. Conrad Veidt, who plays the Nazi officer in the film.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Conrad Veidt, in reality, was a refugee from the Nazis. His wife was Jewish. He had had to, to leave. He was a good man. He was a decent man in every respect. And he knew in Hollywood and elsewhere that he was going to have to play villainous Nazis and he was going to have to make them odious and frightening and all, the, all those things. And he did that. He did it with good grace. But he usually, and I think in Casablanca, he brought a little extra humanity to them. Even Strasser, who is the black character in the film, there's a certain humor to him. There's a certain intelligence to him, which is allowed by the film. Mm. And you don't see much of Peter Laurie in the film, but you remember him years later. Sidney Street the same. Marcel Dalio, who is, as I recall, not even credited in the film, plays the croupier, who turns up twenty-two when Rick wants it?
1: Yeah, the, and he's famous for, if I recall, Rules of the Game by Run. I was going right? to
2: say yeah. Rules of the Game is yeah. one of the great mm-hmm. films of all time. He's he's superb in it. He was a leading actor in uh, France in the thirties. He had to leave too, and you don't even get his name in the credits. It's an you, embarrassment of riches. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and although I think there was a lot of indecision about who would play which part. Once they picked the team, mm-hmm. team clicked. And you appreciate how they work together. And sure. you see and you feel their friendship even.
1: Well, this is what I mean about, uh, I, I just feel it's the most perfectly cast movie.
2: Absolutely, perfectly cast. And yeah. we're talking about an age where casting was a very big part of the studio system. Mm-hmm. So an actor like Sidney Greenstreet, say, would be taken on with a plan in mind that he had a lot of characters to play. So you know he and Peter Laurie made a lot of films together because Warner Brothers saw and understood that those two, so physically different, they worked on screen. Their voices, beautiful melding of two very strange, distinct voices so that you just loved hearing them talk to each other. Now they don't talk to each other, in Casablanca, but Warner's made a lot of films where they did talk to each other.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You think about the top-notch behind-the-camera talent as well. I mean, we could talk about Michael Curtiz and his body of work. Boy, what a great director, just in terms of uh, the output and the prolific nature of his you know, filmography. Uh, you've got the crafty producer Hal Wallace, uh, kind of a mastermind. Uh, you know, puppeteering everything behind the scenes here. Skilled writers, the Epstein brothers, Julius and Philip, brought aboard Howard Koch, who is famous for um, scripting the famous War of the Worlds broadcast. Yeah. You have the genius composer Max Steiner, ace director of photography Arthur Addison. You've got savvy future director Don Siegel doing some some of the shots. Here's another embarrassment of riches.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I would underline Hal Wallace's contribution.
1: Do you feel like he's the true auteur of this picture? I don't
2: think he's the auteur of the picture, but I think he's I think he's the manager. I think he held it together. And I think that in the end, he was the man who took the crucial decisions. Mm-hmm. And the producer figure often gets... Trashed or disapproved of by film critics, producers can be invaluable. They they have they can have a lot of character. They can be very smart, and I think Wallace was of that type. And so I would give him a lot of credit here. And Curtis is the perfect director for the Hollywood system because he could direct in just about any genre you care to come up with. Hmm. And if you understand what I'm saying here, he did it without character or personality. He was a model of efficiency. He was a very stylish director. He loved moving camera shots, that kind of thing.
1: That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: If you compare him with other directors of that time, like Howard Hawks, who was at Warner's at the same time, Hawks, you can recognize the personality. Of the pictures as belonging to him. Gautiz made Yankee Doodle Dandy, Mildred Pierce, Casablanca. Apart from the efficiency, which is vital, there's not really a level of personality in those films that makes him stand up as what we call an auteur. And I have huge respect or directors like that. I think they are vital in television long series today. Nobody knows who directed Breaking Bad or <laughs> The Sopranos even, but they are very tidally directed.
1: Yeah, you speak to his versatility. You mentioned some of the the great masterworks Curtiz was helming. You think of the Errol Flynn classics, Adventures of Robin Hood, Captain Blood, The Seahawk, and then some of the gangster pictures like Angels with Dirty Faces. Yeah. And then later, you know, some, some more sentimental things like White Christmas and Life with Father. Talk about versatility, right? I mean, he, he was a journeyman director, but, you know, he had an impressive curriculum vitae, you could say.
2: Very. And, and my recollection is that he got paid more for this film than either Bogart or Bergman.
1: Isn't that interesting? Wow.
2: <laughs> Good for him. That's how highly he was rated.
1: But you also think about the ending of the movie. Now, in my opinion, it's not predictable. It's exceptionally complicated, ambiguous, and poignant. And the fact that the conclusion was, as we were talking about, written at the last minute with the actors unaware of how the denouement would unfold, it speaks to how affecting and seemingly spontaneous some of the performances are. So, again, this ending is one of the great conclusions in a a classic Hollywood film, or any film for that matter, because it's not necessarily predictable. Do you agree?
2: I would love to have been there when the film opened, obviously, because <laughs> I just don't know the answer to what you're raising here. Okay. I don't know how unexpected the ending was. Obviously, there was a tradition in movies, It's it still exists to some extent, that the male of the female lead would go off together or if not they would go off. It was clear that they were tied by a love bond. I can believe that audiences when the film opened thought that would happen that Bogart mm-hmm. and Bergman would go off and I think the Paul Henry character is played down somewhat so that you can see that might happen. I can envisage an ending in which at the airport maybe, László gets shot and killed, so that the two leads would go off together. I think I do think that the the fact that they don't go off together is an important part of why the film has endured. I think that lovers who are separated or thwarted in some way, I think they mean rather more than the conventional happy ending. If it was Rick and Elsa who walked off into the fog at the end. I'm not sure the film would mean as much now as it does.
1: Yeah I mean the emotionally complex and unresolved conclusion I think may have even inspired later films. It's as you said not a classic Hollywood happy ending for its time. There are no easy choices nor is there a clear resolution because neither Ilsa nor Rick knows what the other is necessarily thinking or feeling about one another and no one necessarily lives happily ever after quote-unquote. Every major figure In Casablanca has to ultimately make sacrifices by the conclusion, but doing so guarantees their redemption as characters and our admiration as viewers. We also don't know by the end whom Ilsa loves more, perhaps. I mean, she has not professed her undying amore for one man, nor do we know Rick's true motivations. Is he giving up on Ilsa because he knows he can't compete with Laszlo? That's a possibility. Is he enacting some kind of emotional revenge on her for Ilsa abandoning him? That's a possibility. Is Rick selflessly choosing the greater good? Seems the most plausible here, but we just don't know. And I think that ambiguity just adds to the deliciousness of Casablanca.
2: Yeah, I I do think that 80 years later, it's notable, and I think women in the audience pick up on it, that Ilsa does not have the decision herself. I don't think you could do that story now where the men decide what's going to happen. I think you would have to allow that Ilsa makes the final decision.
1: However, she does say, in all fairness, uh, she says, I can't decide for us. You're going to have to do the decision for us. So she leaves it to I
2: don't like the idea of women saying, I can't decide. Guys, you work it out for me. That's part of the really damaging impact Hollywood had on the way we think. Mm. Women can decide and do decide in real life, The film is dated in that way. I don't blame the film for that, Mm -hmm. but certainly most films made in that time granted men a kind of supremacy. Uh, But I don't think that's easy to get away with today. I have seen the film with um, audiences who had had some trouble with that, and I I think that trouble will only increase as time passes. Women in Casablanca are... They're almost the assets of men. There are no natives, no locals in the film. Those things, if you put them together, can leave one thinking, I love Casablanca. It's so telling of its period when it was made. It is such a revealing commentary on how the factory system worked. But mm-hmm. it's a tall story. I'm reminded one of the Epstein brothers who as you said earlier, wrote the film, one of them said later in life, Casablanca is all very well, but it's, excuse the language, it's slick shit. <laughs> there is that element to the film. And, and I think we're all mature enough to handle that, to deal with it. Mm. We, don't, we don't have to say Casablanca is perfect in every respect. It was perfect for when it came out, but a lot of things were perfect when that film came out that we would not tolerate today.
1: Sure. You could point the finger at any classic movie or bygone work. Uh, there, there are going to be problematic elements, uh, you know, generations later. But nevertheless, we're still watching and talking about Casablanca. And just get back to this ending. Uh, I just wanted to make one more point about it that I think makes it all the more resonant to me. And you don't have to agree, but tell me your thoughts here. Uh, it involves this painful decision, right? A conflict between personal love and political idealism. If you interpret the conclusion as, you know, a straightforward propagandistic moral that sacrifice is necessary to win the war, then you may believe that it's an upbeat and it's, you know, inspirational ending. But if you are more heavily invested in Rick and Ilsa's love story, it's hard not to feel torn and somewhat deflated after she flies off with Laszlo. Mm. You know, true, there's a lighthearted capper in how Rick befriends uh, Louis with the the hint that they will escape to freedom together. But we are left to ruminate on what ifs and if onlys.
2: No, I agree. The ending is it's full of crossed wires. And Mm -hmm. and I like that. And and I'm reminded of when I was on your show last time, we were talking about A Place in the Sun. Now, A Place in the Sun, I think, is one of the great Hollywood love stories. But the guy goes to the death chamber. At the end, mm-hmm. so they are they are not going to be together. And I no. think it is the fat- the fatality of that that makes the film so moving. And it's it's a reason why that is another classic that people still see, and you and I and other people still talk about.
1: Right. True. Arguably, this is the film that also reminds many Americans, uh, nostalgically about World War II, at least those who, you know, lived through that conflict or remember it or were children of it or what have you, in that its plot greatly involves that strife and was released just after the U.S. got involved. We were talking about this. You know, it wistfully evokes a bygone, unforgettable era that history and posterity won't allow us to forget. I understand it's romanticized, it's stylized, it's Hollywood polished, the story is uh, artificial to a lot of extent, but it can be a, a very nostalgic film as far as you're know, thinking about World War II.
2: Oh, I absolutely agree. And of course, I think it's clearer year by year that World War II is in a way one of the great emotional peaks in the history of the West and of America. It it was a terrible war, but I think that all through the war in 1945 and decades later, it's possible for us to look back on it and say, you know, we did the right thing. Now, you could argue that we let the war occur, which is a bad thing, Okay, But once war was inevitable, a lot of people made huge sacrifices. Uh, They made very smart decisions. We had pretty good leadership and we respected them. And on the front or at home, we felt more or less that we were in a shared task and that the task was not just important but essential, that um, the existence of the world and freedom and so on, all that rhetoric, those things depended on what we were doing. Mm -hmm. I think it's very notable and I'm sure you think about it as much as I do, that we are now not quite in a war, but we are onlookers in a war that becomes increasingly terrible and destructive, and we don't quite know what to do about it.
1: Are you talking about the Ukrainian conflict?
2: Absolutely. Right. And we, we look back on the unity that existed between 39 and 45, and it's not that we want to repeat it, but it's, there is something in it that makes us admire ourselves, right? And, and I, I mean that gets back to what my parents felt about the film. They, you know, they had lived in London during the war. I, I was born in '41, so I was there, but I was too young to know the house was being bombed and that kind of thing. But they had, they had known and felt. The peril and the dilemma of the war and and they'd been uncertain as to whether they or the whole system was going to survive and it did and i i do think that for a long time after the end of the war that example meant a great deal And, and people still talk about a sort of a precious golden age of brotherhood and sisterhood where people were fighting the fight together now we know in reality a lot of people cheated in lots of different ways. But still, I think the notion of the, the allies defeating the tyranny mm-hmm. is one of the great, great models in history. And uh, God knows, we wish now we could regain it.
1: Yeah. Everything you said is absolutely spot on, and it ties into some of the themes of the film, because we were talking earlier about how sacrifice is at the core of this story. Selfless sacrifice. Each major character by the end of Casablanca, they must choose to forfeit something for the sake of defeating the Nazis. Rick has to choose to let Ilsa go. Ilsa decides to get on the plane with Laszlo. Renello elects to protect the three lovers and go off with Rick. So, again, a lot of, uh, you know, sacrifice goes on. But also the choice of neutrality in both love and war. Yeah. Because Rick and Louis must decide whether or not to fight the Nazis. Rick and Elsa have to choose whether to rekindle their romance and remain together or sacrifice for the greater good of the war and her marriage. So, again, a lot of uh, taking one for the team is going on here.
2: There was a real feeling of a sort of United Nations cast. You know, when Mm -hmm. you think about it, Bogart is really the only American in the picture. Everyone else comes from somewhere else. And, And I think that's a very valuable part of the film. It, it dramatizes the idea we've been talking about of brotherhood and togetherness in a, yes. in a profound way.
1: Absolutely. And then as far as other themes to kind of dwell on here, the inescapability of the past is a major one because Rick, Ilsa, and Louis cannot evade their memories or their previous romance. I'm sorry, L- Laszlo, I meant to say. Yeah. Uh, Rick is reminded of Ilsa by music and the fact that she's re-entered into his life and Ilsa is torn between her past lover and her current lover. Yeah. And Renau realizes that he like Rick must leave Casablanca and join the French resistance after aiding Rick. So the past, you can't quite escape that past. Uh, also, the power of good luck is certainly on display in Casablanca. Gambling, the promise it offers to those seeking to escape Casablanca is prevalent at Rick's Cafe, right? Where wagers are made and games of chance involving human lives are played, you could say. And you recall how Sam, he he sings the song Knock on Wood. And, and that's a reference to a popular idiom that means you hope good fortune will persist. Sure. So the power of good luck, I think, is uh, also a tenet at work here.
2: I don't think it's a small thing in the history of Hollywood that Sam is a significant character that was not too common in American films of that period. That you're right. There would be a black character, and you sort of you saw that he felt things too, and that he mm-hmm. was worth listening to.
1: Oh, totally agreed. It's great to see, you know, an African-American actor cast in a film of this era. And and it is not a small part. I oh, mean, he is right. a very close friend and obviously an employee of Rick, but they've been through so much together and you could tell that there's kind of a love story there in a, in a way as well.
2: Yeah, no, I agree.
1: Yeah, real quickly, as far as other themes, obviously this is a political allegory to some extent because the film plays like a well-timed fable about America's stance on World War II, maybe the isolationism approach. Before 1942, the United States, like Rick, tried to remain neutral, tried to sidestep the world conflict. But following Pearl Harbor and after Elsa suddenly reenters his life, more Americans, like Rick, start to embrace the ethical value of sacrifice and, you know, the importance of political idealism over personal desire and self-preservation. So it becomes a very allegorical film, I think, for people of that era.
2: We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the Warner Brothers were Jewish. Uh, And I think they had a much sharper sense of what was happening in Europe and of how dangerous it was than a lot of Americans. Mm -hmm. And Warner Brothers was the bravest of the studios, without doubt, in taking on the whole German issue. Uh, A lot of the studios were very afraid of losing the German market. Warner Brothers were braver than others in that respect. I don't mean to say that they were knights in shining armor. They weren't that type. But I do think that um, Casablanca and other films of the period are are good examples of Hollywood saying we have to take some stand here and we identify with it personally.
1: Yeah, because Warner Brothers, you're absolutely right, they would go out on a limb sometimes and they would do social message pictures like I was a fugitive on a chain gang or some of the gangster pictures. Yeah, they weren't afraid to take some chances and thank God they that, that was true because uh, maybe we wouldn't have a picture like Casablanca if it were not.
2: Well, there you are. Yeah.
1: As far as themes, just to kind of round that out, you have a classic lovers' triangle. That's a that's a time-tested theme. Living in exile, uh, Casablanca is a city replete with foreigners. You know, many of whom can't return home due to the war. America represents this promised land on the far side of the desert, while Casablanca is kind of this purgatorial oasis in the desert, with Rick's Cafe standing as a neutral sanctuary for all. So, uh, yeah, I think that speaks to a lot of different people, even if you aren't necessarily a refugee in 1942. And lastly, the anti-hero turned hero, because Rick is one of cinema's first great anti-heroes throughout most of the movie, in that he has positive and negative qualities. We were talking about the gray kind of shades of Rick, as well as uh, Renault. He's he's this multifaceted, mysterious personality, He has so many different names he's called by others. For example, he has this shady past, uh, and but once he makes the moral decision to help Ilsa and Laszlo, he becomes this more heroic figure. So it is very much about the transformation of Rick. And as we were talking about Renault, it is an 80th birthday celebration. David, it's customary to give presents on birthdays, and you know the drill here. I asked you this one year ago at this time. What is Casablanca's greatest gift to viewers? What would you say?
2: Well, I feel now that its greatest gift for us is to show us how Hollywood functions. Mm. And, you know, Hollywood is a great moment in American cultural history. I don't mean to give it a clean bill of health. I think that there were a lot of problems with Hollywood, and we've mentioned some of them. Yes. But the idea that Hollywood could look at the world situation and find a story and tell it so well and do it for millions of people so that the the millions felt satisfied, touched, abused, everything we mean by entertained. I think that was a wonderful thing. And I think it may be America's greatest contribution to the world imagination that they, they showed for several decades that you could make reasonably intelligent, very attractive, appealing movies, stories that meant something to people who could not speak a word of English, had never been to America or to the West. Mm-hmm. I think that is still very much at the core of the American dream. And that still has some reality.
1: I love those sentiments. And I never thought about Casablanca or you know, what you were talking about in quite that way. So very resonant. Yes, a lot of food for thought there. If you ask me, David, as far as Casablanca's greatest gift to viewers, I'm a sucker for sentimentality, I have to admit. I weep up every time I watch It's a Wonderful Life. So this movie is certainly going to speak to me. But I think its its greatest present to film fans could be its proud pedigree as a standout in the romance genre. Mm-hmm. It placed tops on the American Film Institute's 100 Greatest Love Stories of All Time list for good reasons, right? I mean, you have this tortured romantic tale at the heart of the film, the bittersweet backstory involving Rick and Ilsa's whirlwind relationship. Uh, you have the array of conflicting feelings and wartime motivations that tug at them from different directions after she re-enters Rick's life, including you know jealousy, attraction, anger, uh, compassion, betrayal, loyalty, patriotic pressure, altruism, all of these things kind of coalescing to create An emotionally resonant cinematic experience that's the way i felt anyway but what particularly helps distinguish casablanca from other romantic dramas of its era or any era for me david is that there is no obvious happy ending as i was talking about soulmates though they may be ilsa and rick must part for the greater good before the credits roll but their unselfish choices make their characters all the more deserving of empathy and appreciation And instead of expressing idealized romantic affection, they ultimately demonstrate what? Unconditional love by letting each other go and realizing that their personal story doesn't even warrant a trifling footnote in the pages of history that are being written. That famous Hill of Beans speech that Rick gives. Theirs is a, a love where time and place and circumstance conspire against them. And I think it's these oppositional forces that add crucial dramatic weight to the narrative and the performances. And as we were talking about, David, part of the brilliance that buoys Casablanca is that it's a film of temporal relevance for 1942, right? A time when the tides of war were in the Nazis' favor, uncertainty about the global conflict and its repercussions were prevailing, and a mysterious foreign locale with an exotic name like Casablanca could concomitantly command both the box office and newspaper headlines. So talk about good timing. And using this intriguing setting and the topical context as the backdrop of a love story, Yeah, to me, that provides a priceless gravitas that has helped Casablanca defy father time and the dustbin of popular entertainment irrelevance. So for me, that's the greatest gift. So, David, do you have anything in the works that you'd like listeners to know about? A book, uh, an essay for Criterion, for example?
2: I have a book coming out in February Okay. uh, called Acting Naturally. Ah. And I can imagine it's a book about acting on the screen and and I'm proud of the book and I hope people will like it.
1: Is it uh, acting throughout the ages or is it classic Hollywood?
2: It covers the history of cinema broadly and certainly doesn't exclude countries other than America, but a lot of American acting is in the book and talked about.
1: Oh, that sounds really fascinating. We will certainly look for that. Anything else on the horizon?
2: Uh, That's all I want to talk about.
1: Okay, fair enough. Wow. Well, I want to thank you again for taking a deep dive with me into Casablanca. It was a real treat to talk to you this time around. And I'm so glad you said yes a year later to returning to Cineversary. My pleasure. When you want to get serious about talking cinema, you reach out to a serious heavyweight like David Thompson, a guy who continues to pack a formidable punch with his analyses and insights on film. So, David, thanks again. Next up, a man I've had on my guest wish list for quite a while. It's the inimitable Kenneth Turan, one of the great voices in film criticism and a real champion of Casablanca, too. Let's give a warm welcome to Kenneth Turan, current film critic for National Public Radio and former film critic for the Los Angeles Times, as well as the author of several books, such as Not to be Missed, 54 Favorites from a Lifetime of Film, and Never Coming to a Theater Near You. Ken, I have long been a fan of your work, and I'm just so happy you've agreed to climb aboard this Cineversary train to Casablanca, which I believe is one of your favorite films, right?
3: Yes, it totally is. I mean, as soon as you said Casablanca, you kind of said the magic word. I said, okay, this I have to do.
1: (laughs) It's not swordfish, as the Marx Brothers would say. It's Casablanca. got you into the secret club here. Okay, fantastic. So tell us a story, Ken, if you can recall, about the first time you watched Casablanca. What was your initial reaction?
3: Oh, my God. You know, this is really a story. A lot of the films I've seen, I don't remember exactly the first time I saw them, even with films that are favorites of mine. Mm. But Casablanca, I have a very vivid memory. I was an undergraduate at college at Swarthmore in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And this was in the 60s. This was like 100 years ago, to all intents and purposes. <laughs> and someone, you know, I was interested in film and someone said, in those days, you had to to, to see old films. They weren't around. You couldn't you, you, there were no DVDs. There were no videos. You had to catch them on TV when they played. That's right. And someone said to me, you know, there's this film, Casablanca, coming on TV. And most people at the college lived in dormitories, but seniors and stuff lived off campus. And they said one of the seniors, I forget which one, was going to show the film on his TV. And everyone who could squeeze in the room was welcome to show up. So I go to this place, this off-campus house, and it's like tons of people from the college there. There's just little tiny portable TV. (laughs) I'm like standing in the back, you know, because I got there a little late. And Casablanca is playing on this little portable TV in someone's living room. And it just literally is probably in some ways the least promising way to see a film. But I just loved it from the moment I saw it. I said, wow. And I, you know, I loved it so much. I never forgot that first time I saw it because I said, wow, this is quite an experience.
1: So eventually, did you have an opportunity to see it on the big screen? It's at, uh, let's say, an art house or maybe a college screen. Oh, sure.
3: Yeah, probably I Mm -hmm. saw it. uh, Gosh, I probably saw it, uh, you know, when I went to graduate school in New York. There were all those the age of the great repertory houses. The Thalia, the Bleecker Street, the New Yorker—I probably saw it at one of those places uh-huh. while I was in
1: school. And so, in a way, uh, that that first viewing is a very intimate, uh, memorable experience, but crowded and from afar, if you will. And and it, it it doesn't do the film quite the justice it deserves until you perhaps see it on the big screen or at least a larger television setting. So. Uh, Of course, uh, how many times over the years would you say you have screened this film? Could you
3: give an estimate? No, I don't know, maybe a dozen times, Okay. which which is a lot for me. I mean, there's so many films to see. I'm still coming across films I haven't seen. And to give time to something I've already seen, no matter how much I love it, I really have to love it. So Mm -hmm. Casablanca is it. But, you know, I want to say it speaks to the power of the film that even under those terrible circumstances, it really captivated me.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, Great movies have a tendency to do that. Do you rank your favorite films? And if so, where would this place? Uh, Could you give a numerical kind of ranking to this? Or, Or how do you kind of give a hierarchy to your favorite films?
3: It's a top 10 film for me. I mean, I don't like them, but it's definitely a top 10 film for me. Couldn't even tell you off the top of my head what the other nine were, but I know that it's a top ten. <laughs>
1: and I'm sure it's subject to change, right? I mean, uh, everybody's favorites can uh, vary from over time as you see new and different films and so forth. But yeah, this is one that I would venture to say are on a lot of top ten lists among fans and critics alike. So yeah, what's your relationship with Casablanca? Why is it important to you personally? I mean, what is it about it that has maybe transcended time?
3: Well, there are two things, really. I mean, number one, it's kind of a go-to film for me. Mm-hmm. It never disappoints me. If I'm in the mood for some classic Hollywood stuff, if I'm in the mood for the kind of emotions it creates, I go back to it and it works all over again. It's like I've never seen it before. You know, it kind of blows me away all over again. And also, I'm a big fan of studio filmmaking, the golden age of Hollywood. Uh-huh. And this is really an example of how good studio filmmaking can be. You know, that right. people are... Bagging with with good reason, people, you know, talk about the defects of the studio system and studio filmmaking, but they did make some great films, and this is one of them.
1: Yeah, I talked at length with David about the almost happen-chance nature of the making and reception of this film and just the confluence of good luck, great events, you know, natural organic PR from World War II and, and Casablanca being in the headlines and all that kind of thing. Many scholars and critics will marvel at this picture's construction and its its pedigree, particularly considering, as you said, you know the luck and the kind of uh, happen chance nature of the making of Casablanca. I mean, you consider that it was filmed in under three hurried months, and many screenwriters were called in to help doctor the the story, including Casey Robinson. Of course, we we credit Howard Koch and and the Epstein brothers and some others, but. You know, you you hear trivia like, you know, several of the actors didn't care for the director or maybe even each other. <laughs> They're making up the ending kind of on the fly, the days of, and, and pages are being hurried to the actors. And again, this is just another production on the Warner Brothers docket with no great expectations necessarily from the makers involved. And it's just kind of marvelous to to think about those circumstances, right? Do you also kind of uh, marvel at, uh, you know, when you look back at the history of the making of Casablanca?
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this is the least likely film to be a memorable film. Mm. I think no one working on it thought it would be this memorable. They probably all were shocked when this turned out to be, I believe it won Best Picture and a couple of other Oscars. Right. Mm-hmm. This was not the, you know, nobody thought of it in this way. I mean, there's a wonderful book on Hollywood called The Genius of the System, And this is an example of the genius of the system. The system worked in such a way that it called this forth, even though it was highly unlikely for it to happen this way. Right.
1: Yes. For me, I mean, just to answer this question about, you know, why it continues to matter, what makes it worth honoring 80 years later, I think it checks the boxes in several categories as one of the best ever. So it's quite possibly the finest romance film, at least from the classic Hollywood period. It's arguably the most patriotic movie. There's a lot of moving, sweeping, stirring scenes of patriotism in the film. I contend that it's the most perfectly cast movie. I mean, everybody is just spot on in terms of the acting, almost born for the roles that they're cast in. And lastly, it could be the greatest screenplay ever. The Writers Guild of America has ranked Casablanca as the greatest screenplay of all time. So, yeah, what what, do you, what would you say about some of these points? Sure,
3: I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously I, I agree or I wouldn't be here talking to you, you know. <laughs> sure. uh, you know, I mean, I, you mentioned a couple of the aspects of its plot and really one of the things I've thought is that it's almost like a whole season of films crammed into one film. You know, there's so many different kinds of films. So the, the kinds you mentioned, you know, it's romantic, it's patriotic, it's, you know, it's a thriller, you know, it's all kinds of stuff. You know, I think it's important as an example of the studio system, of the kinds of stuff that this often derided period could produce. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fact that no one planned on it, no one thought they were making a memorable film, that's kind of astonishing. It is. And, you know, one of the things that I think really matters is that the issues it deals with, cynicism versus idealism, that kind of stuff, they still resonate. I mean, these are not like, well, they cared about that then, we're way beyond that now. These are still contemporary issues that are still very much on everyone's mind, you know. The worst things get politically, the more we think about cynicism versus idealism. What's going on here?
1: I think that also gives it an evergreen quality, the fact that tonally it is across the board. You have the pessimism and the cynicism. You also have the patriotism, the sentimentality, the romance, the idealism, as you said. And it gives a little something for everybody. As well, Ken, it's arguably the most quotable movie ever. It's got so many great lines. Oh, yes. Obviously, here's looking at you, kid. Bogart says it three or four or five times. Of course, of all the gin joints and all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine is eminently quotable. We'll always have Paris, round up the usual suspects, I think this is the beginning. This could be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. What a capper. I mean, the the line to end them all. And, And, of course, the hill of beans speech. Ilsa, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. Time and again, Casablanca does not disappoint with fantastic lines and quotes.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, just, you know, again, it's kind of it's the genius of the system mm-hmm. it wasn't like one person sat down, you know, in front of a, a roaring fire in his writing cabin and uh, typed this out or, you know, several people, as you said, worked on it that they didn't get along. Uh, in later years, they all fought over who did what and how much credit each one should have. You know, the bigger the film got, the more territorial that everyone got in terms of what their contribution mm-hmm. was. Right. but really it's kind of astonishing that it is as well constructed as it is uh given how it came and and also you know I think the ending fascinates me because it's it comes as a total surprise there's an, it doesn't you know one of the sometimes studio films even films today do this if something like that is going to happen they tip their hat you know ahead of time. That this is going to happen, they can't help themselves. They just so worried that the audience might be troubled that they put little breadcrumbs in there to let mm-hmm. you know what's happening. And Casablanca doesn't do that. The ending comes as a complete surprise. You never have totally agree that that's going to happen. And I think that's that's a wonderful thing, and it's uh, it's great screenwriting, no matter how many people it took to get to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I went at length talking to David about how I believe it's one of the greatest endings ever, because of the reasons you said it's not predictable. You know, a lot of people in this time, 1942, when the film was released, would probably expect a a tied-up-neatly-in-a-bow ending in which Rick and Elsa, you know, uh, end up together and Laszlo flies off. Or maybe Laszlo is conveniently offed by the Nazis and that gives Rick and Elsa an out. But no, it it presents so many delicious kind of uh, counterweights and counterbalances and uh, conflicts, and it just makes for great drama. And I want to read something here. It's a quote from Glenn Erickson, who is also called DVD savant. He does some fantastic essays. But he ultimately suggests that the, the crux of the whole film rests on the sudden developing friendship between Rick and Louis, And this is something I also talked to David about. And how that relationship, quote, acts as a ballast to Rick's relationship with Ilsa. The film is really a political romance between Rick and Louie as they circle and test one another to see who's worthy and who's not. When it comes time to act, their combined cool saves the day. Each makes a dramatic choice to step away from their cynical detachment and take a stand. With these two sharpies in charge, we know there's hope for the future. Unquote. Yeah,
3: no, that's a very interesting. I like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I for me, at least up till the very end. I mean, you can tell, you know, when they give you, you know, when uh, Reigns lists what Rick has done previously. You know, you Rick is like a pretend cynic. Uh, you know fairly early on that he's not as cynical as he believes, you know, that is something the movie does clue you in on. Mm -hmm. You know he's not as cynical as as he pretends, but Claude Raines' character is drop-dead cynical, you know, and uh, you don't think he's pretending at all. He's totally convincing, and when it develops that, in fact, he has something in common with Rick, that is a real surprise. You know, Rick, being that way, not a surprise. Claude Rains, I remember even the first time I saw it, I said, wow, this is unexpected,
1: you know. Absolutely, and just to kind of quote some some similar lines from Rick and Louis, respectively. Rick says, you know, I stick my neck out for no one. I'm the only cause I'm interested in. And then you have Renault saying things like, I blow with the wind. So again, the cynicism is certainly on display, but to your point, I agree. Arguably, this is more a film about the kind of character arc of Renault because, of course, of course, Rick is going to desperately need him at the end. Yeah. And as you were saying, Rick has this, you know, hard exterior, but a soft kind of inside. He's a softy uh, at, at heart.
3: I mean, it's Humphrey Bogart. He's the hero. You know, we know he's not going to turn out to be a son of a bitch. But Claude <laughs> Rains' character, you know, Captain Renault, is different, mm-hmm. you know, but very well. I mean, if Hollywood played to form he would absolutely be the villain to the bitter end yes but no pull that switch his character is a pivotal one in the movie i think totally and it doesn't always get the the attention people talk about bogart and bergman and they're wonderful but uh, claude Rains' performance i think is the key to the whole thing
1: yes we are in complete simpatico there and then you think about the the music in the film. Of course, the genius composer Max Steiner did the score, and he plays up the love theme uh, as time goes by again and again. And that song is played uh, by uh, Dooley Wilson. It really helps make Casablanca timeless, right? Because it never gets old to me. It's one of those classic songs In the words of Deep Focus Review author Brian Eggert, who said, The song wisps the characters away from the past where love was easy and time seemed to float. The song elicits the same reaction for viewers because as it plays, we remember the joyful experience of the whole film and escape into the pleasant simplicity of the golden age of movie making." So, yeah, what are your thoughts about the music in Casablanca?
3: Well, you know, it's hard to argue with Max Steiner. You know, he's one of the great... uh, great composers of the golden age mm. and yeah i mean the music just seems like it was born at the same time of the film i mean it seems completely natural it seems completely appropriate it doesn't feel again it doesn't feel dated as time goes by you know that song is, is an evergreen you know it never feels like boy that you know it's not like some charleston that you know joan crawford used to dance to i mean this is a very <laughs> different kind of music And it just works, you know, the whole film is of a piece. I mean, that's what's so remarkable about it, given how it was put together, that it should be of a piece is really almost miraculous.
1: What in particular do you admire, Ken, about the film's construction in any way? It's screenplay, direction and performances for that matter. Anything you want to give a nod to here in terms of uh, the, the people behind the scenes or in front of the camera for that matter?
3: Well, I think the one thing I do want to give a nod to, because it's often forgotten, is a Michael Curtiz's direction. Mm. You know, Michael Curtiz was a veteran. He made a ton of films. The auteur theory had a lot of trouble with him in its early days because his films were very various. Mm-hmm. You know, he just liked to make movies. He didn't care what they were. He knew how, you know, he was not, as you you know indicated earlier in, in the broadcast, he was not necessarily the actor's favorite person. He could be a martinet on the set. But he knew how to make the trains run on time. You know, he just provided the the polish that was necessary for these various pieces to come together. And, you know, I think it's also important to notice that he was an immigrant himself and he knew the territory. He knew that anxiety There's a kind of anxiety that immigrants have Hmm. that people who are not immigrants really don't understand. And he knew it. You know, he knew the territory, and I think that helped a lot.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, he's often credited uh, retrospectively, uh, maybe not as uh, fitting perfectly into that auteur theory, but in terms of some of his, you know, stylistic choices consistently uh, between movies, especially for Warner Brothers, you think of how he's able to move the camera. And, and in this film, it seems like, the shots move effortlessly and invisibly between shots and between scenes, thanks to a steadily moving camera and an economy of well-composed shots and the terrific old Hollywood studio system talent that knew how to manufacture a product efficiently, right? Yeah. You think about Casablanca, if you really break it down shot to shot, that camera is moving quite a bit.
3: Yeah, but it's not showy, Mm -hmm. you know. It's not like one of my favorite directors is, uh, you know, Max Ophuls, who had an enormously showy camera. But, you know, this is really, this is very impressive camera work. And I think partly because it doesn't call attention to itself. But as you say, as you've seen the film again and again, you start to notice that the camera is doing things. The camera is not planted, you know, in front of people. It's moving around. and yeah. But he does it effortlessly, doesn't call attention to itself. Not You're not supposed to notice it. It's just supposed to pull you in. And that's exactly how it works.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's not doing some grandiose, like, crane shot, like a Notorious yeah, or something. Yeah. He's not uh, doing crash zooms or things that are, as you said, going <laughs> to call attention to a showy style. But again, it's this effortless second nature that he has and his crew that he works with. It's part of the secret weapon behind why Casablanca just works so well as a film.
3: Absolutely. You know, it's just... Uh, you know finally you just have to throw up your hands you know it's kind of a film that almost resists analysis mm. but you know it works again and again and again you know it can make you feel the same way pretty much every time you see it there's not a lot of films that can do that you know and uh hats have to go off to it.
1: Totally. So, Ken, in what ways do you think Casablanca might have been influential? And I was trying to put my thinking cap on for this one. Uh, I'm not a film historian, but I I can do some research (laughs) online, certainly like any of us. But can you cite any movies or filmmakers that you think might have been inspired by this work?
3: You know, that's an interesting question. I've thought about it. I mean, obviously, Mm -hmm. play it against Sam is the obvious choice. (laughs) You know, the Woody Allen movie is directly referential to it. It's so obvious it doesn't even count. But what I think really, in some ways, what this film did, and its air of romantic cynicism and Mm -hmm. idealism, all those things, it kind of permeated the culture in such a way that it's hard to cite specific examples. It just kind of got into everything. You know, I mean, not obviously everything, but it became a kind of way Hollywood looked at the world that was, you know, because it was natural for Hollywood to look at the world this way. Mm -hmm. And because Casablanca was so successful, more and more people kind of said, well, let's 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 look at the world this way. So I think there's a lot of films with a little touch of Casablanca, but I can't think of anything like, you know huge that said this is a direct descendant of Casablanca. It's almost like everything is a direct descendant of Casablanca.
1: That's a good point. In the modern age, and this isn't even that modern, but a film like Havana, which, when was that? Was that 30 years ago? I'm not even sure.
0: Uh, Uh,
1: But it takes a cue from something like Casablanca as far as a period piece, a romantic kind of wartime uh, drama. You have things like, in its own era, films like Passage to Marseille, To Have and Have Not, sirocco the marx brothers even did a movie called a night in casablanca you mentioned play it again sam so there is some evidence maybe a few name drop films that that might have some influence directly but there's also a hypothesis in film literature from what i've gathered that casablanca represented a sea change in american movies for its time and this kind of harkens to what you were just talking about which is that casablanca helped steer hollywood toward a new era of moral sophistication in which perhaps the protagonist's motivations and you know past actions they're more blurry more suspect i think if you look closely at rick he exudes the classic traits of a prototype antihero at least until the stories close. And this approach would perhaps prefigure the onset of things like film noir and its darkly tinged characters who are capable of both, you know, virtue and vice. So kind of ushering in this new era of, of more sophistication and and maybe uh, more of a, an anti-hero character.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, that's kind of, you know, it's in line with what I'm saying, the sense that this, this film permeated film culture. Right. But, you know, I think it's also worth pointing out, I mean, some of the classic pre-code films like Heroes for Sale. I mean, we have the notion of these flawed heroes, and you know, 10 years earlier. You know, this didn't come out of nowhere. You know, I'm a fugitive from a chain gang, you know, Heroes for Sale, Wild Boys of the Road. Mm -hmm. I mean, we think of pre-code in only its sexual aspect, but really part of pre-code was this kind of damaged heroes, you know, or heroes that you weren't sure were heroes. So Casablanca both comes out of that and, you know, looks toward the future. I think looking towards film noir, I totally agree with. I can see that. Absolutely.
1: Let's talk for just a brief moment about that screenplay, which, as I said, the Writers Guild of America, they placed as the greatest of all time. Do you tend to agree? I mean, uh, is this one of the very best? And If so, what is it about the story and its construction that makes it worthy of such recognition? Can you put your finger on it?
3: Well, that's a good question. I, You know, again, I don't have a one best, you know, I don't know what the best screenplay is, but I think it really is an excellent screenplay, one of the best.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: We've talked about some of the aspects already. You know, the the great surprise of the ending is something that's very hard to do. You know, and that studio films rarely did. You always knew how they were going to end, you know, and that was part of the charm. And you didn't know with this one, and it's continually surprising. So to be able to kind of, that sleight of hand, Everyone always likes films that end better than they begin, and this begins well, but it's got a, a slam bang ending, and so that's that's what every Hollywood screenplay is trying to do. And this one really, you know, this won the jackpot. Yeah, you know, the great lines that we talked about; those are really Certainly. great. Right. You know, the characterization is very vivid. You know, there are a lot of actors who are on there for just a little bit of time, uh, like uh, Peter Laurie, Sydney Greenstreet. You know, they really are small roles, but they're very they're meaty even though mm-hmm. they're small yes and, uh, they're 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 not cardboard people they're very vivid characters uh even conrad veit as you know the nazi you know the german officer he's wonderful yeah i mean they all have meat all the characters have meat on their bones even if they're only there for a short amount of time it's like they all think they're the center of the movie and we believe them you know what i mean they all yes. think the movie's about them
1: Right. What I paid attention to on this most recent rewatch, Ken, was uh, the scene in the Blue Parrot. I think it was the second time when uh, Rick visits uh, Sidney Greenstreet's character who's trying to buy Rick's cafe, of course. And you have this little meta nod to the Maltese Falcon. Do you, do, you ever, do you know what I'm talking about? Where there's a <laughs> shadow of a falcon in the background going on. and It's almost this shameless kind of plug for uh, the Warner Brothers universe of great characters, right?
3: It was like the Marvel universe before the Marvel <laughs> universe.
1: <laughs> so it endlessly rewards upon repeat viewings, I think, Casablanca does, as so many great classic films do. This movie uh, has has legs in, in, in many ways. But that leads to my next question to you, which is, what is the future of Casablanca? Now, there, you could make a case that there's only a handful of absolutely evergreen classic movies from, from the golden era that future generations will likely keep watching. You know, think of The Wizard of Oz, It's a Wonderful Life. I think Casablanca is going to be up there, too. But, yeah, what's the future of this movie? Uh, will people still be watching and talking about it in another 80 years?
3: I would think so. You know, I mean, these things, they ebb and flow. Mm -hmm. Film uh, kind of celebrity and film's kind of domination of the culture ebbs and flows. But I think as long as people watch old Hollywood films, they will get around to Casablanca and they will be rewarded. There's nothing about it to me that seems like it's. if it hasn't dated by now, I don't know that I see it dating. You know, it doesn't feel dated to me. You know, it's just uh, it's remarkable in that sense, maybe because it was written. You know, I mean, I I think about this in terms of to be or not to be, you know, the Lubitsch film.
1: Yes, we covered covered that in an earlier episode this year, yes.
3: When these films were made, it was not clear that we were going to win the war. True. And now we say, well, of course they knew. Well, they didn't know, you know? So that kind of anxiety, that kind of uncertainty, I think permeates the film and gives it a kind of integrity. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not made from a triumphalism point of view. Right. It's made from the point of view as like, we may go under. And if we go under, what are we fighting for? What's important to us? And I think those qualities will keep it alive as long as, you know, if people say, I don't watch black and white films, I don't watch old films. Well, that's fine. But if you care about old movies, if you care about the golden age of Hollywood, as I say, you're going to find this film and you're going to be happy.
1: Yeah, that makes sense to me. All right, Ken, this is an 80th birthday celebration. It's always customary to give presents on birthdays, except... It's the fans who continue to get the gifts. That's my (laughs) contention. So, yeah, what is Casablanca's greatest gift to viewers?
3: It never disappoints. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's an incredible gift that you can go back to it and get what you remember you got from it the last time you liked it. It's lasting entertainment. And also, there's kind of a continuum. You can remember how much you enjoyed it the last time you saw it. You can think back on who you were then, what your life was like then. You know, it, it really kind of unites us both as individuals with pasts and with a community of people who love this film.
1: That's a good answer and a great gift. So Ken, before we say goodbye, is there anything you'd like to let the audience know about that may be in the works? I know you're still doing film criticism for NPR. Uh, is there a book on the horizon, for example?
3: There is, and it will surprise no one who's been listening to know that it's a, it has to do with the golden age of Hollywood, uh. I'm doing a book on a joint biography of Irving Thalberg and Louis B. Mayer. Wow. Different studio, different sensibility, Mm -hmm. but uh, I'm deeply into it and uh, I'm really enjoying myself. You know, it's, it's, it's great to live in old Hollywood.
1: Yeah, no, you are right in the epicenter of that kind of vibe. And when can we expect that book?
3: Oh, God only knows. Couple of years. <laughs> okay. I would say a couple of years. Still
1: marinating, right?
3: No, I'm writing. I'm writing. But you know, one of the things with books is that even when you're done, hmm. it takes a year till it comes out. You know, this is not like the daily newspaper. It goes slowly.
1: Sure look forward to the forthcoming book, as well as your continued criticism with NPR. So keep up the great work, Ken.
3: Well, thank you. Thank you for thinking of me for this film. It is one of my favorites. I could talk about it till, you know, I my voice went hoarse, which is kind of <laughs> starting to do.
1: Well, we'll spare you that indignity. We were uh, thrilled to have a chance to talk with you at length here about Casablanca, a shared favorite film among both of us. Thank you so much.
3: Well, thank you, Eric.
1: Excellent stuff from Mr. Turan, who has my deep appreciation and respect. Ken, thank you. It's time now for Standing Ovations. This is where I give a shout out to a film, website, podcast, book, television program, or other work that I think would be of interest to classic film lovers just like you. Fittingly for November, my endorsement this month goes out to Warner Brothers home video and their recent release of, yes, the 80th anniversary edition 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray package of Casablanca, which has been getting stellar reviews for its video and audio presentations, let me tell you. I got a chance to see how good the movie looks and sounds on this new edition myself, and frankly, it's never been better. Seriously, if you've doubted whether or not to pull the trigger on an older black and white movie that's now available in 4K... This product presents a compelling argument for doing so. What is it about this edition that shines? Well, it's the finer details that matter. It's the greater depth and contrast, the deeper shadows and black levels, and, yeah, wider dynamic range, too. While the original camera negative no longer exists... I learned that this version was sourced and restored from a nitrate fine-grain master positive created in 1942, which brings out the best visually in Casablanca. And if you're a purist, you can rejoice that you're hearing a fresh restoration of the original mono source. It's not some artificial 5.1 channel remix. This 4K release includes all the great supplements found on the previous Blu-ray iteration, such as separate commentary tracks by Roger Ebert and Rudy Bellmer. You've got an introduction by Lauren Bacall. There's a 1988 PBS special called Bacall on Bogart. Fantastic featurettes like Michael Curtiz, The Greatest Director You've Never Heard Of, and Casablanca, An Unlikely Classic, which I referenced in my conversation with David, as well as the 1992 documentary You Must Remember This, A Tribute to Casablanca, you also have reminiscences by Bogart and Bergman's children. There are outtakes, deleted scenes, trailers, a Bugs Bunny Casablanca spoof, and much, much more. This is the one to purchase on and revisit, my friends. So if you've come this far with 4K, make it a point to pick this edition up and retire your old copies of Casablanca. Like what you hear on Cineversary? We'd love to get your feedback. Whether you want to nominate a movie for a future anniversary episode, provide comments, or just have a question, get a hold of us at cineversegroup at gmail.com. That's C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E group at gmail.com. Also, you can really help our show grow by spreading the good word about the Cineversary podcast to your friends and loved ones. Even better, please leave a positive online review and rating which significantly helps us get discovered by new listeners. So if you use Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or CastBox, simply search for the Cineversary page, look for a link that says something like ratings or reviews, click that, and leave that rating or review. While you're at it, take a moment to like us on Facebook, too. And if you'd like to go an extra step and help keep our show ad-free, consider making a donation to the Cineversary podcast by visiting tinyurl.com slash We really appreciate your support. Lastly, we encourage you to visit ciniversegroup.com. That's the portal for my private film discussion group I launched back in 2005, where you can hear recordings of our group discussions and read in-depth analyses about the different movies we study what's on tap for Cineversary in December? We'll give you more than a peek. We'll give you a peck, as in Gregory Peck, who won an Oscar for his performance in To Kill a Mockingbird, which celebrates a 60th birthday next month. Until next time, this is your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, and cherish those classic movies because they're not getting older. As time goes by, they're only getting better. Thanks for giving us a listen.